0: So um, this uh, book, um, William Lane Craig, often called Bill Craig. He's an American uh, academic. Um, Here are his sort of titles and credentials and so on. The guy's got two separate earned PhDs, one one in philosophy, uh, which he earned in the UK, and one in theology, which he earned in Germany. So he knows his stuff and he's quite expert in a range of fields. And because of the area of philosophy that he's studied... Uh, He's also very up on contemporary um, physics, cosmology Mm -hmm. the science of the origins of the universe is a particular uh, area of expertise of him Um, and he's sort of noted for various different areas of research that he's made his specialty Uh, one is uh, arguments for God the other is the resurrection of Jesus that he's written several books on he did one of his PhDs on the resurrection Uh, the philosophy of time actually an interest of his both as um, he actually set up the, uh, one of the uh, philosophy societies about time and um, he then links that into some of his sort of thinking about the nature of God, what is God's relationship to time, uh, does God foreknow the future and all of this sort of stuff he goes into mm-hmm. and um, that links then into looking somewhat at the, the attributes of divinity and he'll defend particular views within all of these uh, which we need 't really go into, but just sort of to highlight these are his areas of of specialism, so really arguing for God, arguing for the resurrection and uh, about the historical Jesus, and thinking a little bit about the, the sort of metaphysics of the nature of God, especially in relationship to issues about time mm-hmm. he 's also very well known as a debater and he 's debated um, very well known. Uh, Atheist writers and um, academics um, the world over. I've just put a selection of names up here of more recent guys. I'm actually on the UK tour committee. He's doing a, a tour in October of this year of England mm-hmm. and I'm on the committee organising that, that tour which is very interesting at the moment and uh, so I'm looking forward to that I think
1: he's actually coming to Scandinavia after that
0: tour Yes, I believe he is Yeah, so going going on so uh, let's start getting into because philosophers love defining stuff so let's Mm -hmm. get a little bit into what is apologetics Um, is this light over the screen okay you can see fine Um, this is Kenneth D. Boer in the Apologetics Study Bible and he says apologetics may be simply defined as the defence of the Christian faith I think it's well and truly wedged in at the top there, yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: Three (laughs) centimetres. That's fine.
0: Perfect. Hmm? Okay. So apologetics may be simply defined as the defence of the Christian faith. Um, He's going to say, well, simple on the one hand, but the simplicity of this definition, however, masks the complexity of the problem of defining apologetics. Turns out that a diversity of approaches has been taken in defining the meaning and the scope and the purpose of apologetics and you you have whole sort of schools of how to do apologetics and there's a very good uh, book published by Zondervan called Five Views on Apologetics where you have different Christian scholars arguing about what the best way to do apologetics is so they're sort of apologising for their method of doing apologetics um, which is a whole sort of extra layer of discussion so Craig obviously is one particular Approach out of a, a range of approaches. Um, here is a quick uh, video. If all the technology works, of uh, American f- uh, apologist Frank Turek answering the question, "What is apologetics?"
2: Apologetics is sort of this big word, mm-hmm. but what exactly does it mean? Right? I'm sorry, I can't tell. You. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean we're saying we're sorry. It comes from the Greek word apologia in First John, in First Peter three fifteen. Always ready to give an answer or a defense. In Greece, it, it means that you're defending your position. It doesn't mean that, that you're apologizing, that you're wrong or anything. It simply means you're defending your position. So that's where it comes from. So 1 Peter 3.15 is sort of the apologist rallying cry here. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. But it really also goes back to the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Christians don't get brownie points for being stupid. Now, there's a couple of reasons that we do apologetics. Number one, it's commanded. In other words, the Bible commands it. But number two, reason demands it, too. Why should we believe in Christianity? Why not Islam? Why not atheism? Why not something else? And when you're losing, Bobby, 75% of your young people from the church, once they leave the home, which is what the church is losing right now, three out of every four, then it's critical that you give them answers because a lot of times they're leaving the faith because intellectually they don't know why Christianity is true because we've never told them it's true, we've never given them the evidence, and the evidence is very good.
0: It's interesting that he's picking up on the conversation we just had about the church needing to give young people reasons. And he says, I presume that's statistics from the American situation, but he says the American church is losing three out of four young people when they move out of the... The, the church circumstance that they're brought up in and then go away to to college to university and face challenges um, if they haven't had the opportunity to wrestle as you you're almost saying wrestle with those challenges in a sort of supportive context then it can be absolutely devastating um, to suddenly meet these challenges and in, in an unprepared way um, say so some some pragmatic reasons for it but also some biblical reasons and we'll pick up on some of those Bible references later as well it's Craig's definition he says apologetics uh, serves to show the unbeliever the truth of the Christian faith and to confirm the faith to believers so he says it's not just important as something we do to non-believers it's actually important for believers as well uh, to reveal and explore the connections between Christian doctrine and other truths um, basically any argument you make for anything is drawing connections between things and so when you argue for Christianity you're drawing connections between uh, the truth of the Christian worldview the gospel, who Jesus was and so on drawing connections between those things and other things in life so it does serve to sort of show the, um, the connectedness of, of the gospel to the world, to life, to experience to Uh, and shows it's not just this sort of religious compartment of life but actually the religion is relating to the whole of of existence Um, uh, so that's an interesting angle on it and again Craig references particularly the way in which Jesus' apostles act in, in Acts, he says one reads the Acts of the Apostles, it's evident it was the Apostles' standard procedure to argue for the truth of the Christian worldview, both with Jews and with pagans, and he particularly references Acts uh, 17 as he would St Paul in in Athens. So he says it's the kind of broader task of Christian apologetics to help create and sustain a, a cultural milieu a bit of French in there sort of cultural atmosphere in which the gospel can be heard as an intellectually viable option. So he kind of thinks even if um Particularly, sort of high level academic arguments about God and so on. Some people will, will criticize that and say, oh, you know, that's just taking place in the ivory towers of the university. How does that affect the ordinary man or woman in, in the pew in the church? They're not going to be able to understand the ontological argument. You know, that's not going to connect with people. But Craig will say it's still important for those people in your church pews that there are Christians. Um, Advocating the ontological argument, say, at the university, because that what happens at the university has a sort of an effect on the atmosphere of the the, the intelligentsia of the country. The, the sort of what people pick up again, particularly through through the media, uh, media people educated in the university, and then they convey their ideas and worldview through the media and so on. So he says it's important to have these high level abstract discussions going on at the university because then at least the ordinary man on the Clapham omnibus as we sometimes say in, in Britain um, might pick up the idea that there are really bright people arguing for Christianity at a very high level in the university even if they can't sort of grasp that conversation to even know that it's going on is, an, is a really important thing um, and then of course he will argue that you can, you can try and address issues at a uh, sort of appropriate level with the individual, um, once you've done the hard spade work of really making the arguments, you can then, it's then another task to sort of say, well, how do I appropriately communicate some of this content at a level that the person I'm engaging with or the audience I'm engaging with can, can grasp? Um, but he, the book that we're looking at, he's really doing the, trying to do the sort of high, fairly high-level engagement. Uh, it would then be another task to think, well, how do I really communicate that? Uh, to an audience. Um, and, you know, he, he's obviously engaged in some of that in terms of the debating that he does, but again, that's fairly high level stuff. You will go to a university campus and hold a debate with an atheist professor in front of a bunch of students um, to then think, well, how do I use some of that material to help my church youth group? Um, you obviously need to put in a fair amount of work to. Um, help them to access some of that material. But there is, he's just come out with a very, very good book called On Guard, which is an apologetics book that uh, tries to communicate it a bit more simply and has diagrams and cartoons and personal stories and so on. Um, so he's obviously himself realizing the need to try and sort of broaden the the audience reach of the, the material.
1: The content of On Guard. Is basically the same, but exists. Yes, it's
0: basically protection. the same topics, but a little bit broader. So it does, for example, have a chapter on the problem of evil, yes. which reasonable faith the textbook doesn't. Do um, no. But it, it's 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 very good, very clear, mm-hmm. um, and a good way into a lot of the material that's in reasonable faith at a slightly more abstract level. Yeah and he notes and I think he's right about this that we're living in a very sort of exciting times in terms of Christian philosophies undergoing something of a, of a revival in academia uh, in America uh, at least since the sort of mid 20th century and um, he thinks that discoveries in the natural sciences and work in history means that actually at the moment we've got better resources than we've had at any time in history for arguing for the truth of Christianity um, we've made Lots of discoveries (laughs) through science and so on that he thinks points in the direction of of God and um, biblical criticism. He says has embarked on a renewed quest for the historical Jesus that's much more positive than the kind of nineteenth-century theology that people like Richard Dawkins seems to think is the last word in New Testament studies. (laughs) Yeah. So. Craig defines apologetics as that branch of Christian theology that seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. It's fairly kind of dry and abstract and narrowly focused definition. It's a theoretical discipline that tries to answer the question, what rational warrant or justification can be given for the Christian faith? And then he therefore says, you know, apologetics isn't training in the art of answering questions or debating or doing evangelism although it would be useful for all of those. So he has a fairly kind of, this is a abstract theoretical discipline of apologetics. Um, and I'd like to sort of set it in a slightly broader context than, than those definitions. And I actually think in practice, Craig himself meets a sort of broader view of what apologetics is when he's doing things like debate, and you actually notice the way in which he tries to communicate some of the ideas and some of the, uh, as we'll look at, rhetoric that he, that he uses, and the way he sometimes paints word pictures or draws on a personal story, his use of quotations from atheists to back up points that he's trying to make. So, in practice, um, he, he does apologetics. That's a sort of broader thing than he defines apologetics as, as it were. Um, but you, you know, you pay your money, you take some choice over how you define these things. It doesn't you know, really matter that much. <laughs> as long as you notice that people are, are using the term in slightly narrower or broader senses. But, um, yeah. And he points out you can divide apologetics, as is often done, into sort of. Um, Positive or offensive or sort of attacking. A, a lot of military metaphors have been used in the history of, of apologetics, which is a bit unfortunate, um, I think. Um, or defensive, sort of, sometimes it's called negative apologetics, which is, again, a rather unfortunate wording. Um, giving reasons for being a Christian or giving reasons against being other things but, or simply defending being Christian against objections to it there are these sort of different areas of apologetics and there would be some people for example who would think that it's fine to defend the Christian position against objections but it's less important to give positive reasons to people for becoming a Christian so um, apologetics can sort of mean different things to, to different constituencies now, uh, uh, you know, I have to excuse me. This pun: um, the gimler Collen course is based on what they call an apologetics canon. Um, canon, from the uh, obviously meaning a, ru- a rule, as in the canon of scripture. Um, the apologetics canon, rather an offensive device. The course KL103 has these various categories of, of what they think of as sort of central areas to think about things like. The nature of faith and knowledge, pluralism and truth, God and reality, humanity and evil are sources of history, the identity and resurrection of Jesus, and thinking about ethics and the justification of of ethics. Um, I quite like the way that this uh, philosopher from America, Chad Meister, um, structures the topics. In his book, Building Belief, um, Constructing Faith from the Ground Up, and he structures his book from the sort of ground up saying, first of all, you think about issues of truth. What is truth and knowledge, and how do we access it? Can we reliably know stuff? Then you think at the level of worldviews. People have different views of what the truth about the world is. And that might include giving criticisms of non Christian worldviews, then arguing for. Theism of a general kind arguing that it's reasonable to think there's some kind of a God then getting more specific well, well you know okay there's some kind of God but is it the God that Muslims believe in or the God that Jews believe in or the you know so getting more specific talking about revelation claims and the resurrection of Jesus or looking at the historical Jesus as of course the defining characteristic of Christian theism and then getting at the end to the gospel <laughs> and actually not simply treating this as a matter of um, let me advocate a theoretical position to you but actually if I'm recommending Jesus to you I'm not just recommending a, a set of beliefs that I want you to sign up to I'm recommending a person to you who is inviting you to trust him for your salvation um, so the apologetics has to connect with Evangelism, and actually, I would be with those many who would say that apologetics and evangelism, if you look at the New Testament, um, always, even if you can distinguish between them, go hand in hand. Um, You know, Paul's saying to the philosophers in Athens, um, he critics their worldview and he says to them, God's going to judge humanity in the end, and he's he's shown that he's appointed the man Jesus as the judge by raising him from the dead. And he'll judge you, and you'll all to repent. And you know, so he goes from philosophical arguments about the nature of historical philosophy, all the way through to repent because judgment's coming. Um, so he connects his apologetics and his evangelism uh, in the one and the same speech. Uh, and through a complicated series of arrows, you could show that the. the The categories that the Gimler column course has and the categories that Meister use actually overlap and connect to each other. Um, So they're basically talking about the same things under different labels. Mm. Uh, It's just a different way of of structuring it.
1: Mm -hmm. Let me just uh, explain about the canon. When when we design a course, it has to be accepted by state committee Mm -hmm. to be See the level of it, and for the whole bachelor's degree, it was through through a committee. And Mm -hmm. they, when they saw our first uh, first suggestion, this they they gave us many very helpful suggestions to improve it. And one of them was, well, we think you should make apologetics the heart of this because Mm -hmm. it's a communication world. We could be many things. Mm -hmm. They saw that the heart of it seems to be Christian apologetics, and we were very happy because. You would think people would be very allergic to apologetics, but is what it is. Hmm. And you should define uh, what you, a, a kind of a canon of, of, of topics which you at GimliCon think are basic for doing Christian apologetics. And hmm. the list is is what we developed. These hmm. issues are important to do Christian apologetics today. Hmm. They are, uh, they're not built up as this is one one argument and not either, either as Meister's as a kind mm. of uh, building on one another but mm. more kind of these areas mm. would be invo- important yeah. to reflect on like, basically
0: what it is. Meister is basically connecting those topics up to what would be called yeah. a, a classical apologetical method mm. and Then the classical apologetic method says you start with common ground and you first of all argue for God Mm-hmm. and then you argue for the particular revelation mm-hmm. um, because or, or some would, hardliners would say that's, that's absolutely necessary to do that others would say it's at least useful to do that because if you can approach say the evidence about Jesus
2: with the belief
0: in some kind of a God in hand as it were then it will take much less evidence to convince you that a miracle has happened if you already believe that there's a God who exists who's Possibly, might do miracles. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you don't believe in a God, uh, I might still be able to convince you that a miracle happened, but the evidence that I'm drawing on will not just be all going into showing that a miracle happened, it will also partly be going into showing that there is a God
1: mm-hmm.
0: as well. And so if you approach that evidence for the resurrection, say, and you already believe in a God, all of the strength of that evidence can go into showing that the miracle happened as it were and I'm not having to also at the same time overcome your um, the, the sort of strength of your assumption that there isn't a God um, so it kind of focuses the power of the of the evidence about revelation m- more um, if you've already established a, a theistic context that would be the kind of classical um, methodology and Craig is a sort of um not not hardline classical apologist Yeah. so uh, at various stages in this conference actually I'm doing uh, some talks on this material on what I call apologetics in 3 Ds, which is part of the research that I've been doing with gimler um, uh came out of various things that I've done for them in terms of how I would define apologetics in a sort of more um, holistic sense um, and I've picked up on this whole 3D film things, and it's like extra dimensions, so mm-hmm. apologetics in 3D. And you'll see, uh, you end up, it sounds very theoretical, but you end up with a three-by-three three grid of concepts, which is absolutely threatening, as you'll see. <laughs> and that,
1: that's something you have developed. Yes. not kind of uh, yeah. ours, but you give it to us. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, and then we, I then drawn it in the um, communication and film yeah. um, course as well. Yeah. so we said we'd mention 1.3.15 um, always be prepared to give an answer Greek apologia reason to defence or literally uh, a word back an answering word uh, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect this is the apologists rallying cry verse um, apologetics I think biblically is part of spiritual warfare when you talk in some church circles about spiritual warfare people immediately think of a sort of very charismatic uh, exorcism ministry and praying against demons and, and so on and I'm you know, fine with that and indeed I wrote a book on angels and demons some years ago but uh, I think spiritual warfare has a broader connotation than that this is uh, Paul for example Uh, This is meant to be Paul here. From 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 to 5. And he says there, uh, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds of of ideas, of ways of thinking about things. This means, because he then goes on to say, we demolish arguments... And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So he's saying our fight uses divinely appointed weapons. What do those divinely appointed uh, power do, weapons do? They, They demolish ways of thinking about things that are contrary to Christ. They take apart arguments. So, reasoning and arguing and taking thought captive uh, to be in line with the nature of Christ, the Logos of God, is an inherently spiritual activity for Paul. <coughs> so, it's a good verse to go to for those Christians who might have the impression that sort of doing apologetics is unspiritual somehow well not for Paul it wasn't this is uh, Alistair McGrath not a particularly flattering photo Alistair McGrath theologian from Oxford and he says uh, apologetics aims to secure consent evangelism aims to secure commitment so sort of saying apologetics is focused on the head and evangelism on getting the heart to follow through on the head um, and that's why I think the two really go together Um, You can distinguish them, but they're clearly sort of cup and saucer to one another. Now, part of my thinking on apologetics here has been shaped by uh, Francis Schaeffer. Have you heard of Francis Schaeffer? Schaeffer? less. When he says things like, uh, the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a discussion, but that the people with whom we're in contact may become Christians and then live under the lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life. And this emphasis on, it's the whole person living a whole Christian life that's the kind of end game for apologetics, and not just the narrow thing of, of winning an argument or winning the, the debate. Um, so I quite like that holistic uh, emphasis there. He says, I'm only interested in an apologetics that leads in two directions. One is to lead people to Christ as saviour, and the other is that after they're Christians, for them to realise the lordship of Christ in the whole of their life. That there's a sense in which apologetics for the Christian plays a role in in discipleship and and the transformation of the individual into the image of Christ um, as we sort of fulfil that command to worship God with all of ourselves, including our our minds. So here's my definition of apologetics, and I'll take you through it. It's got three... Clauses, each of we refers to three key concepts and we'll work our way through it. Uh, the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spirituality, so there's that pluralism as objectively true, good and beautiful through the responsible use of rhetoric. So we'll take a little look at what underlies what I'm saying there about spirituality and Christian spirituality, the values of truth, goodness and beauty and the three elements of classical rhetoric, the tradition of thinking about rhetoric that comes from um, Aristotle, particularly in the ancient world. Okay. Okay. Um, have you come across this book by James W. Sire *The Universe Next Door*? Um, it's a book about different worldviews, and it's incorporated part into some of the other courses at Gimla Colin. Uh, he gives a particular, rather long definition of worldview, um, where he gives a sort of slightly broader definition of worldview than many people have in the past. People have tended to say a worldview is your um, set of answers to the basic questions about reality. It's just a sort of intellectual thing. And Sire says, no, well, it is, it is that, but it's also a matter of the heart. It's your commitment to a particular way of life. Um, and I kind of think, well, when I'm, t- when I'm talking about a spirituality, I'm kind of going sl- even slightly broader than what James Sire means by a worldview. So I actually think it's, it's fine to say, okay, a worldview is the intellectual stuff, but there is also this level of heart commitment And then I would add, there's also, these two things together lead to people behaving in certain ways. Um, So, what I come up with is that spirituality, because it's often a term that's used without much definition. A spirituality is a way of relating to reality. So, it's about relationships uh, via our worldview beliefs, our attitudes and our behaviour. And it's when you have a set of beliefs about reality you have certain attitudes towards what you think is true, and they might be positive or negative attitudes, and those two things together then lead you to act in a certain way. Uh, and those kind of three levels together constitute a, a spirituality, and I'd say that's a general structure for any spirituality, be it a Buddhist, or Hindu, or Christian, or Atheist, would have that structure it's just that they would all put different content in those three elements so the atheist has very different beliefs about the nature of ultimate reality and different attitudes towards what they think of as ultimate reality as a consequence and that ought to have if they're being consistent knock on effects to how they actually act in the world
1: so <coughs> This means you will say that athe or, or atheists are absolutely has have a spirituality. Yes. There's no non spiritual. Right. I in don't think there. there this but, sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's right. In this sense, everybody has a spirituality, okay, okay. and we all disagree with people who hold different yeah. spiritualities.
1: So it's not like I want to be spiritual, but you, you are spiritual. Yeah. But are
0: you are? spiritual? The question is not. Yeah. Should you be spiritual or not? Because you are. Okay, the, yeah. The question is: Do you have the right spirituality? Mm-hmm. Is your spirituality true and good and beautiful? Mm-hmm. Is it more true and good and/or beautiful than this other spirituality? Mm-hmm. As a sort of comparative exercise, uh, those are the the real questions. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be useful to redraw the diagram as a a loop, a self-reinforcing circle. Because people believe certain things and they have certain attitudes, they they adopt certain behaviours that tend to reinforce what they believe. You know, because I believe in God and I have a positive attitude towards Him, I go to um, Bible study groups, and that tends to reinforce what I believe because I'm going to a Bible study group with a bunch of other Christians and thinking about what I believe and that's reinforced what I believe um, and my attitudes towards it which reinforces the fact that I keep going to church That so, and I think that again is true of across the board and it's why people it's quite difficult to get people to move from one spirituality to another Apologies is hard work basically because of this because we're not it would be hard enough if we were simply saying to people you know I've got a set of beliefs, you've got a set of beliefs, I think yours is wrong and here are my reasons. But you have to realise that when you're doing that, that's connected to people's whole way of life. How they feel about themselves and the world and other people, how they relate to things, what their relationships are. And that's core to, to who people see themselves as, the things that they do, how they spend their time and their money. and So in apologetics, you're really asking people to shift spirituality mm. that's what you're doing in, in evangelism yeah
1: I'd, I'd like to co- comment here because Please in, in an academic uh, setting we normally focuses, focus on the belief part mm. the intellectual part mm. when I teach students that's where we, we can reach them that's where we are mm. uh, but we would like them to change attitudes, good attitudes we would like them to change behaviours yeah but the intellectual uh, area is normally only the one of them. One of them, and we see that this is this is a very limited view of human beings. Mm. Need, I think in apologetics, and we apl- uh, academic apologetics, mm-hmm. we need to, as you are yeah. doing, widen our perspective and see that uh, our, our beliefs are connected to attitudes, actions. Mm. Uh, when we do even the apologetics, intellectual stuff, yeah, we need,
0: as you say, we need to see the connections here. Yeah, I'm sure you'll start being able to draw the pa- the, the lines between what I'm saying and the, your work in, in media mm-hmm. and how media communicates things. And it communicates, obviously, through much more than simply the written or the spoken word. Mm-hmm. You know, it <laughs> communicates with the music, the imaging, the way the editing, all of that stuff. Um, and having worked on this now when i 'm when I'm doing talks, although of course there's a sense which I, you know when I do an apologetic talk at a university or whatever, there is an emphasis on the on the arguments on the concepts. I am now at least thinking when I put my PowerPoint together, I spend a lot of time thinking what 's an appropriate image for this slide? What music am I going to be playing when people come in that sets a certain mood and atmosphere um, Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I'm beginning to think more how am I communicating uh, in more than simply oh okay, okay, here are the bullet points that you can all follow along on your worksheet you know uh, Yeah. now actually I didn't really come up with, with this <laughs> uh, some guy called Jesus seems to have got there before me because uh, he um, in the you know, response to the uh, what is the greatest commandment, what's the main thing in life uh, it, recorded in several different Gospels and slightly different wording, but he basically replies, true spirituality means loving God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength, i.e. your attitudes, your heart, your worldview from your mind would include that, and strength, things that you do, your actions. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh,
1: Will the PowerPoint be available? Afterwards,
0: in PDF? Uh, the PowerPoint isn't, but the The, the outlines, the outlines are, yeah. Are, okay. Yes, and some of the slides are on the outlines. The, the nice slides are on Good. the... Pa- yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Um, so, according to Jesus, Christian spirituality, you know, true spirituality, loving God with all of your beliefs, attitudes, actions, and loving your neighbour as yourself. Um, it's just that... Um, the way to enter into this form of life, this spirituality of loving God's self and neighbour is through Jesus himself as the kind of divine point of access to relationship with God um, forgiveness and so on but that's the sort of inner structure once you've entered into the spirituality is, is there defined by Jesus in terms of these three categories Now if we go back to 1 Peter 3.15 you'll can notice that It does talk a lot about actions, be prepared to give, give, do this. So apologetics is an an action we're called to. It draws on attitudes that we're meant to have as Christians that support us doing those actions. Why do we do those things? Well, because of the hope that we have. Uh, How do we do it? With an attitude of gentleness towards the person who's asking the question. An attitude of respect Towards the God in whose name we're being an ambassador. That's where the, the language points to the person and, and to, to God. I'm, so I'm told. I'm no language expert here. Um, and of course, this draws on beliefs and intellectual work. So he says, be prepared, have answers, give reason. So once you start having this structure of spirituality in mind, and you start reading the pages of the New Testament. With that at the back of your thought, you keep seeing it come up uh, again and again. Um, Acts two thirty-seven. So the first Peter's just on the first ever evangelistic sermon to the crowds at Pentecost, and here is their response. Uh, Acts two verse thirty-seven. When the people heard this, the beliefs, the truth claims that Peter communicated, they were cut to the heart. They had a certain attitudinal response and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do as a consequence of this? Um, so that from the response of the crowd to the message of the gospel, you can get the structure of the spirituality without even mentioning the, the content that's being put in there. Or Paul from Colossians 3, uh, 15, 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, you you have the the, the heart, uh, the the concepts, the word, the teaching, and the doing, the living it living it out. Um, Philippians four six to seven. Uh, present your requests to God, do this and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, you know, across the board you can't go, ah, okay, this is working through. So that's the spirituality bit. And if there's comments or questions, I'll move on to the next of our two out of three sets of concepts Um, long term here from philosophy um, transcendental values uh, philosophers have used this to talk about concepts that can apply to anything they kind of transcend the categories that we divide the world up into because they can apply across the board um and in, particularly in medieval scholastic philosophy, they talked about the, the, the three transcendental values of truth and goodness and beauty. And that everything that could be evaluated could be evaluated in terms of its truth or its goodness or its beauty. And actually, when you start looking into it, you see that those, those values are really related to each other. Because when, you're, when you claim, you know, this action is good... You'll notice you're also claiming that it is true to say that this action is good. Um, Now, a lot of, and I think, biblically and in scholastic philosophy, and it has plenty of defenders today, actually an increasing number of defenders, would say that all of these values are are objective. Just as much as, as truth is objective rather than, you know, what's true for you is not true for me it's just subjective just a matter of opinion um, and the church has has been pretty good at holding on to that concept that truth is objective church has been pretty good at holding on to the idea that goodness is objective as well because we have the you know the, the whole importance of sin quite central to the gospel so goodness is objective good and bad but also traditionally and i think biblically beauty Uh, Is objective, Uh, and really all you need to do to define that is to say, okay, here's how I'm going to define what I mean by saying something is beautiful it is that it is uh, morally permissible uh, and thus good that you appreciate it aesthetically. So you look at a rainbow. You feel a positive, attitudinal response to it. Uh, says, that's delightful, that's wonderful, that's beautiful. I want to draw other people's attention to it so they can share in the joy and say, oh, look at that rainbow, guys. And when I do all of that, I'm not doing something evil. I'm doing something good. Okay? So, uh, so given that goodness is objective, given that definition of beauty it follows that beauty is objective if if what you mean by saying something is beautiful is that it's good that you appreciate it
1: mm-hmm.
0: because of its qualities not because of it's not determined by me and my attitudes and what i think but that when i respond to it because of its qualities as it were um mm-hmm.
1: This doesn't mean that it's very easy on each instance to decide.
0: Right? Uh, absolutely. But just as much as in the ethical case, all of the arguments would be parallel. There's, there's well-trodden arguments about is goodness um, objective or subjective? You know, what about the fact that different cultures have different values, different opinions about what's right and wrong? Does that mean that there is no such thing as what is right and wrong? Or well, no, because maybe some of the cultures are wrong? um, it doesn't follow from the fact that there's disagreement that there's no truth indeed actually people tend to disagree about things to which there is a true answer Um, if I say I, I prefer Pepsi Cola to Coca Cola that's just my subjective preference that's what I happen to like you don't then enter into a big long argument with me about it and say no you don't prefer it you prefer Coke you, you go, oh, well, I prefer coke, but, you know, it takes all sorts, different strokes for different folks. But if I say, um, you know, um, well, I I, I I like torturing small children for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, then I hope you violently disagree with me, vehemently disagree, not violently, but vehemently at least, uh, disagree with me. And you say, oh, no, no, that that's wrong. You shouldn't. Do that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't like that. You shouldn't have that. Something's wrong with you. If you like, yeah, Um, and so on. Uh, uh, The fact that we disagree and spend all this time and effort disagreeing about the moral cases, the hard moral cases, in itself is a sort of indication that we're talking about a field of objective facts. Whether we actually do know the answer or not, we have this even deeper intuition that there is actually an answer there. And equally with. You know, aesthetic art criticism and so on—entire industries on the the fact of disagreeing about—you know—is this a great work of art or not? Um, You know, I think that in itself is a sort of indication that there there are facts about aesthetics just as much as there is about ethics or truth, more broadly. How about political correctness? Yes, political correctness. Well, in, in a sense, that's just the, the sort of relativism to the, to the culture. Um, and it, this often comes up in the conversation about morality when you're talking about the value of tolerance. And some people will argue, well, you know, you, because people have different values, different cultures have different values, you ought, notice this term, ought to be tolerant of difference. But that's the kind of, the original meaning of the word tolerance is I think you're wrong about something but I value and defend your right to be wrong about that thing and to express it and to live that way if you want to even though I think you're mistaken. So um, we have a scientific disagreement, you know, is there life on other planets? And, And scientist A thinks yes and scientist B thinks no. But both of them think that it's valuable that they both have a right to express and defend their opinion in the public square. And so they tolerate the other scientist. They say, well, I tolerate you having that opinion. I'm not going to say, you know, repent or die of this opinion. But I think you're wrong. Indeed, I only tolerate you because I think you're wrong. If I didn't think you were wrong, I wouldn't tolerate you. I would agree with you. And ador- endorse your position equally on on morals. You know, I as a Christian might say, think you know, sex should be reserved for within uh, marriage relationship. But as a Christian in a pluralistic democratic society, I recognise the the value of uh, a secular legal system which permits people to live together Um, and I can see that different people with different worldviews are obviously going to disagree about this because we're coming from different places and in terms of us all getting along together in in the same society um, we have a set of rules that we all agree to to live by and I tolerate people living in ways with which I disagree for the sake of uh, what I consider to be a more important value of the stability uh, of society and living in a democratic state and so on. it's that kind of move. Uh, so real tolerance again implies real disagreement rather than um, happily endorsing mutually contradictory positions, which is what the sort of postmodern um, take on tolerance has, has, has shifted it to mean, yeah so um, if you were thinking about the, the categories, three categories of spirituality and you would then match these values up and you say okay you, you judge beliefs against the standard of well are they true or not you would judge at, uh, actions by are they good or bad and attitudes by um, the beauty of the character that they evince as it were um, the sort of sense of the term beauty when we talk about, um, you know, beauty is more than skin deep. Um, Oh, he's a beautiful person. He's got a beautiful character. Uh, The beauty of character. So these obviously relate to each other. Just a quick quote from British philosopher John Cottingham. He says, To everyone's surprise, the increasing consensus among philosophers today, and this is across the board, whatever their worldview is that some kind of objectivism of truth and value is correct. Truth, beauty and goodness carry with them a sense of requirement or a demand. The true, uh, I love his phrasing here, the true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. You might notice a bit of a biblical language reflection here (laughs) from Paul, worthy of admiration. And the good is that which is worthy of choice. Uh, and the core concept here being the sort of worthiness to be appreciated, chosen, believed. Um, and here, indeed, need crucial passage for, for the whole Christian understanding of values, I think, is Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 9. And he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, not, of course, whatever you happen to feel is true or whatever's true for you. So, Paul is. Objectivist about these things. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, and I take these to be referring to, to goodness, basically, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Uh, There's a philosopher called Norman L. Geisler who puts this well um, in a talk on beauty that I heard him give on tape from a number of years ago, but he says, it's not... It's not admirable in the sense that you do admire it. That's not the question. People can admire bad things. So, you know, the commandant of Belson concentration camp may have admired the smoke coming out of his chimneys, okay, as a subjective fact about him, but the objective fact about the, the scene before him is that it is not admirable, okay. It's admirable in the sense that it's possible for people to admire it, subjectively speaking, but it is not an intrinsically admirable state of affairs. I.e., were you to admire it, you would be wrong (laughs) in so doing. Um, It is uh, ugly. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) If if you should apply that on, uh, for example, violence... uh, Mm in violence in the movies, and some some people, mm. well, it's entertainment. Yeah, they, that is a beautiful kill or beautiful, um, yeah, yeah
0: choreography or yeah, yeah,
1: and, and it, it's actually violent Yes, people can can admire some aspects. Aspects. Of that's right. <laughs> I,
0: I I did some of my MPhil thesis on, on this work mm-hmm. and um, got into the the issue of um, when you're making a judgment about. Um, ethics people start making distinctions about well okay what about the consequences of the action that's one thing that we can take into account (coughs) but what about the motive shouldn't that count in in ethics as well Mm -hmm. and so you might look at somebody's action and say okay the consequences of their action was very good but their motive was very self-seeking and terrible and maybe overall the event was a bad one or overall the event was a good one although there were some bad aspects to it. I think it's just the same in, in aesthetics. And you can say, okay, what is the beautifulness or the ugliness of the, the end that is achieved, of the means that is used to that end? You know, it, uh, it, Looking at an engine, uh, is it a very efficient, elegantly constructed engine? You say, oh, it's a beautiful engine. It's really efficient, elegantly constructed. Um, it achieves the end of of moving things quickly from one place to another and that's generally a good thing Um, but as a side effect it does produce pollution which increases the greenhouse effect and that's a bad thing Um, but overall is it still a beautiful engine and you could compare that engine to say a baby incubator um, and a nuclear bomb Mm-hmm. okay and i would say the nuclear bomb it's it has a, g- a great beauty of efficiency and the elegance of the physics that lies behind it the engineering precision of its construction you could look at it and say that's really beautiful but the end that it achieves of uh, killing as many people as possible as quickly as possible you know you might think is quite a bad thing and so, overall, you might look at a nuclear bomb and say, oh, that's, that's an ugly thing. Mm-hmm. But I recognise there's some aspects of beauty to it. Mm-hmm. And actually, the medievals would have said there's some aspect of beauty to everything because okay. being in and of itself is a good thing. You, um, and C.S. Lewis says, you know, the devil, even in order to be evil, has to misuse reason and freedom and existence. But existence and freedom and intelligence all in and of themselves good things.
1: So, so uh, you can admire a killer for his skill, even yeah. though you say right. these, these actions are bad, yes. you shouldn't admire the whole yeah. action in context.
0: Yeah. So we tend to watch a film, say a film about bank robbers, a heist movie, and we enjoy the heist movie because of the intelligence, the complexity of the heist that's pulled off. We admire... Uh, the chutzpah and the intelligence of the plan, heist, heist, Is um, it like
1: robber, robbery,
0: heist. Uh, yes, like a bank, a bank, bank heist robbery, or okay. a bank robbery, mm-hmm. um, and then they tend to in the film they put it in context where they're they're robbing someone who's who's not very nice, yeah. mm-hmm. so that we we side with the the group of robbers even though they're doing something illegal mm-hmm. because they're not as bad as the people that they're robbing from. Mm-hmm. You see, so that uh, again gives us more of a justification for for enjoying. The heist, but in, you know, often in real life. However, you know, thrilling a, a, a plan it was, we recognise that the robbery hurts lots of lots of people, and it's illegal, and we don't really think that it's a good thing. But we might have a sneaking admiration for that jewel thief who managed to get past the the uh, security system and so on. So we we make these kind of distinctions in all sorts of areas, as aesthetical as well as um, ethical. Yeah uh, but there I think this is a great passage for showing you. Know, in terms of values and objectivity, Paul, uh, in a typical sort of pre-modern way, is, I think, objectivist about all, all three. Uh, so we've got a three and a three, and, and now a final three. when we look at rhetoric, the transcendental values relate to the three elements of classical rhetoric. Which is, uh, and we'll look into them ethos, pathos, and logos. Uh, relate to goodness, beauty, and truth. Uh, McGrath again he says, In the battle for the hearts and minds of people, Christians need to know about rhetoric. We need to be good communicators. And he says, Aristotle provides a stimulus and a framework for more effective apologetics. So here's a bust of Aristotle from the fourth century BC and his te- book, textbook on rhetoric. Um, which, uh, for example, then influenced the whole Roman tradition of oratory and and rhetoric, particularly um, Cicero, Cicero who was the governor of Cilicia, where St. Paul came from. And Cicero had been like the governor of that area in like 50 BC kind of era. So, you know, in Paul's childhood or just the generation before the that tradition of rhetoric and so on was represented by the guy who was in charge of his area now Aristotle defines rhetoric and he says it's the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular uh, matter uh, admits and it's an objective definition because he's not saying rhetoric is the ability to make something seem persuasive when it's not so there's a difference between rhetoric and advertising, mm-hmm. <laughs> you could put it. Um, he's saying um, it's the ability to look at some something and say, what is persuasive about this? And then effectively communicate, get the audience to notice it. So it's connecting the persuasiveness inherent to something to the audience. It, it's kind of marrying the two together, being a good marriage broker for that contact.
1: This is... Based on reality, not on construction. That's
0: right. Yeah, it is not a postmodern kind of uh, what do we do to make our car look cool? You know, let's drape a lady in a bikini over the top of it and uh, put the latest pop track to it. (laughs) then that'll make the car seem attractive, mm-hmm. even though um, you know, it rusts in six months and uses uh, so many gallons of pe- petrol that it's unaffordable. And, but we won't mention any of that in the advert. You know, mm-hmm. It's rather the sort of advert that, that comes on and says, no, here's our spot cream, we've uh, got scientifically proven clinical testing that shows that it's effective and more effective than our competitor on the market. And so if you want to get rid of your spots, um, consider buying our spot cream because it really works. You know. There's obviously, <laughs> that's very different. Um, perhaps slightly less boring, not as entertaining, uh, but more reality-based, <laughs> at least. Um, uh, obviously, the ideal would be to have the reality-based but um, thrilling and moving and, and so on. So rhetoric encompasses the principles of how best to communicate these objective observations to, to your audience. And this is just the, the central passage, really, from Aristotle. And he says, of the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word. And, of course, he's spoken word orientated back then. you have to apply this to sort of visual and auditory communication of other kinds. There are three kinds. The first kind... Ethos depends on the personal character of the speaker um, relates perhaps primarily to the, the goodness of the speaker and the kind of the, how qualified they seem to be, whether they seem to be reliable, do they come across like the sort of stereotypical used car salesman? Um, do you want to buy something you know VCR off the back of a lorry um, in terms of worldview Hawking? Or do they actually seem to know what they're talking about and be walking the walk as well as talking the talk and so on? The second, uh, pathos, on putting the audience into a certain frame of mind. And I think this relates to beauty, to aesthetics. Um, pathos, um, think of Tchaikovsky's um, Pathetique Symphony. Romantic Russian music writer, and um, in English, the word sort of lost its meaning and it. if we said something was pathetic, it was sort of limp, limp and, and useless. Mm. But of course, Tchaikovsky's pathetic Symphony, it means really emotionally engaging and moving. Um, so putting the audience into a certain sort of attitude of, of mind. And the third, logos, on the proof pers- provided by the words of the speech itself. So the argument relating primarily to, to truth. So, here's Paul writing in Colossians. If you just read, you know, Aristotle at the root of the tradition of rhetoric. And he says, ethos, pathos, logos. These are the three elements of good communication. Paul, in Colossians, chapter 4, 5, 6. When you are with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. Ethos. And hold their interest when you speak the me- message. Pathos. Choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. Wagos. So the three elements of classical rhetoric listed in the same order <laughs> that Aristotle gave it. Um, he doesn't use the words precisely, but I think clearly that the concepts, you know, your character, be pleasant, hold their interest, be engaging, but use a good argument. You know, it, it's no good just you know being persuas- persuasive and using technique to sort of sway the crowd if you're not actually giving them something solid. But you're not going to attract them if you give them something solid in a really dull and uninteresting way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really going to put people off if you don't live it out. Um,
1: just one one comment, um, because the the normal way of approaching apologetics is. Again, on the last day, you, we look at the documents. Mm. And you are you, challenging us to see three dimensions. Yeah. The importance of our character, mm. who we are, which also is a distinction, yeah. and, and the way of relating and connecting to, to the person,
0: yeah. mm.
1: which I think is important. Yeah.
0: So the, the kind of biblical model of, of, of Christians as, as ambassadors of Christ, mm. ambassadors of this foreign kingdom, uh, and we're its representative, and we've not only got to make good arguments to the, the kings of the world that we're going to represent it to, um, but we ourselves have to be a good representative, representative of the kingdom. We need to incarnate that ourselves, and we need to do our best to communicate to people. Mm. And as he's saying, that, that involves understanding them as well as understanding our spirituality. We have to understand their spirituality, their individuality. So we have to be interested in them, not just in ourselves. Um, we, it, really, it all comes down to loving your neighbour as yourself. You know, If you think Christ is not only the best thing since sliced bread, as we say in the UK, but the best thing, and you love the other person... You want the best for people. <laughs> um, and you want to do your best to help them to get the best. That's what it comes down to, really, doesn't it? Um, and
1: and uh, the book is, of course, the curriculum here, mm. is, of course, focusing on the last element. Yeah. That is
0: yeah. a limited perspective. But, but as I say, if you...
1: Broaden it. To broaden
0: it, but even, I think even if you go to the website and you see Craig doing debates, or, or particularly the issue we'll come on to of the meaninglessness of life without God, when he talks on that issue, because he has, it's part of his personal testimony, that issue that he came through, he gets much more personal, much more animated, much more sort of um, rhetorically engaging about it, um, and I think in that area in particular, he's a really good model of, of doing the apologetics mm-hmm. yeah, in, in, a, in this broader more mm-hmm. holistic sense mm-hmm. um, so although he, he talks about it in a fairly sort of narrow academic way
1: mm-hmm.
0: he does it at least in, 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 a, in a broader 3D. 3D kind of way mm-hmm. so um, so back to 1 Peter 3.15 again you, Ethos, pathos, and Logos obviously will relate to our, our three sections there Um, so there I I say that I've sort of justified my definition uh, biblically and from the classical sources and I I have done a whole thing where you can analyse particularly say what St Paul does in Athens with these categories in mind look at his speech and you can see with a, a knowledge of the rhetoric of the classical world and his biblical background what he's doing It fits these categories very neatly um, so this is the chart, with, and we can go to co- coffee, ending with this. Um, the, the the day I was, co- I was flying back from Norway, having done a lecture on communications and stuff, and this all sort of fell into place for me, and I suddenly went... L- yeah, region. I was very much helped. I'd been studying spirituality and what is spirituality. I'd studied the transcendental values in my MPhil work. I was beginning to think about classical rhetoric, and I suddenly went, well, of course, all these things relate to each other. So that means... That we have our spirituality of beliefs, attitudes, and actions judged by the transcendental values of truth, beauty, and goodness, and communicated through the classical rhetoric of logos, pathos, and ethos um, and I found that a really sort of f- fruitful um, seedbed of further thinking and, and practice in this area, um, so I hope it will be stimulating and, and, and a kind of useful conceptual grid. Uh, for you too yeah so this is why I say say it all comes down to love really gentleness and respect love for the other person Um, really good quote from Alistair McGrath which sums this up nicely says we cannot allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he does not also guide our thinking The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in our faith. We must see ourselves as standard bearers for the spiritual, ethical, imaginative, and intellectual vitality of the Christian faith, working out why we believe that certain things are true and what difference they make to the way we live our lives. Above all, we must expand our vision of the Christian gospel. Apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God. True apologetics engages not only the mind, but also the heart. And we impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties. We are thus called upon to demonstrate and embody the truth, beauty and goodness of faith. Because that's what we're asking people to, to adopt and who we're asking people to trust. Um,
2: yeah.
1: I think um, it, it, it's very interesting. You find these classical aspects mm. in, especially in the New Testament, I guess you would find them in the Old Testament as well. But yeah. but you don't have to be Christian to kind of see the, mm. what the relevance and, and what is the universality of the, the categories. That's right. I mean, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so, Christian, in, in in deeper sense, that it's part yeah. of the universe.
0: Yes, but it, you, you're drawing on it. It's been noticed by pagan yeah. philosophers and thinkers, mm-hmm. but it is endorsed uh, and exhibited by the original Christian mm-hmm. uh, thinkers and uh, apostles and so on. Um, and uh, as I'm sure they would say, this is more because you know the Stoics were thinking about the logos. The rationality behind the universe. And John takes that term and uses it in the beginning of John's Gospel and says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God and was God, and the Word became flesh. Became, and, then, and this is new to the Stoics, you know. It's fine to think about the mind of God behind the universe out there, like, you know, Stephen Hawking might talk abstractly about the mind of God and perhaps just means that as a metaphor. Certainly does mean it just as a metaphor given his more recent writings but um, to then say yes okay you're on the right lines guys this we do live in a rational universe there is a mind behind everything it's not matter first it's mind first but that mind has revealed himself to us in a person and wants wants us to know him and relate to him and and here's how um, so really in gospel terms it's just that you know, other other worldviews, although not as, not as sufficient, as it were, as Christian worldview, that doesn't mean they have everything wrong in them. It just means they don't have as much right. Um, so there are elements of truth out there in everything, and you know, the whole the way some of the early church fathers talked about. We must, you know, when the when the Jews went out of of uh, Egypt. They took the wealth of the Egyptians with them, uh, and they took some of their, so that you know, carrying, having an ark of the covenant and so on. It's actually very resonant with the Egyptian background that they they'd been in. So they took elements of culture and material wealth and so on, um, but you then use that for the glory of God, from whom all come all good gifts, kind of thing. Yeah. So there you go coffee time.